Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we are collaborative and we sustain everyone in our community. Today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics, our guest will be Paul Austin. Paul will tell you about his experience with microdosing LSD and his creating the third wave. Check out the third wave on Google. I invite you to text or call in during the broadcast. Just tap in 650-TALLY-HO. That's 650-TALLY-HO. But first, before our stimulating interview, some news and notes in psychology and medicine. Question, is the ultimate fountain of life simply taking time to slow down? Our world, our country, our state, our county, our community, our neighborhood, and most, if not all of us, are going faster and faster in our daily lives. Runners, swimmers, and other athletes set new speed records. Baseball pitchers pitch faster. Tennis players hit balls faster. Computers and cell phones move faster and at faster speeds. Motorized vehicles regularly set new speed records. We have washers and dryers and toasters and coffee makers all to get things moving faster. We have one-minute managers and fast food. We push a button on a screen and items are delivered to our homes. Children want to grow up faster and people want to get there faster, wherever there happens to be. What effect does this cultural agreement on directing us to go faster, what does that have on our subjective experience of how much time we each have to live? our subjective experience of the amount of time we live is diminishing? Is it diminishing? Do the days, weeks, and months seem to be going by faster? Are all your days merging into one? And if that be the case, what might we feel like if we created ways to reverse direction and begin living slower? Might we feel like we are living longer? Imagine going alone or with a companion on a slow walk, having a slow conversation or taking a slow ride in the country. What would be the experience of purposefully parking your car far from where you're going and then slowly walking the rest of the way? What might it be like to purposefully eat and drink slowly? Imagine walking around your home slowly with intention on each step. If you resonate to what I'm saying, try a few experiments. Find a safe place to drive slowly and experience your visual perception of the environment at 10, 15, and 20 miles per hour. 
create a day in your life which is cell phone and computer free, if you dare. What is your experience of being without your speedy cell phone and your speedy computer? Take time to be in nature. Look around. Rather than fast-moving images on screens, what makes up your view? Experience writing with a pen or a pencil and paper. See if you can make your handwriting artistic fun. Could it be that the ultimate fountain of life is slowing down the pace of modern life? I'd love to hear from you on this. Text in or call in at 650-TALLY-HO. Now, let's meet today's guest, Paul Austin, and ask him what he thinks about slowing down as a mental health tactic. And remember, you are welcome to text in or call in. 650-TALLY-HO. Paul Austin is an entrepreneur, public speaker, and educator who's been at the forefront of eradicating the stigma surrounding psychedelics, certainly a worthy cause. In 2015, Paul founded the Third Wave which is dedicated to changing the culture and conversation around psychedelics. Inspired by his own early experiences with LSD and psilocybin mushrooms, Paul's personal mission is to help legitimize psychedelic substances through the lens of intentional and responsible use, ideally beginning at a microdose level. Currently, The Third Wave offers in-depth psychedelic guides, online courses, and one-on-one coaching working at the intersection of microdosing, personal transformation, and professional success. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Paul. Thank you, Richard. It's an honor to be back on the show. Great to see you again. It's been, uh, what, two years or so since uh, we talked on the Zoom uh, before. It, and it, it, and one or two years it's been in psychedelic medicine since then, you know, before I think last time we, sp- we spoke, Michael Pollan's book had yet to be published and, and that came out in mid-2018 and now there's dozens of companies coming into the psychedelic space. There's breakthrough therapy designation for psilocybin and MDMA, uh, you know, Oakland decriminalized, Oregon legalized psilocybin therapy. So it's just such a, such an exciting area to, to be talking about. There seems to be a renaissance going on in, in the psychedelic uh, area, research, use across the board. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why even that was sort of the impetus and idea behind this third wave of psychedelics is we're really going through this, this resurgence of interest in, in these medicines. You know, we as humans have been using mushrooms and ayahuasca and DMT and other substances for thousands and thousands of years. And they, you know, it seems like they're just finding their way back into uh, global consciousness at the right time. And, and they're, they're fulfilling a, a need for, for healing that, that so many millions and millions of people have. So it's, it's such an honor to be at the forefront of this and, and stewarding conversations around 
well, yes, these are powerful medicines and how do we use them with intention, with responsibility, within a framework that leads to not only inner healing, but also um, you know, external change and external healing in, in our culture and society. I want to talk to you a lot more about the Renaissance that's going on. But first, I'd like to go into a, a bit of a historical perspective, particularly for those uh, who didn't hear our interviews in the past. I know I interviewed you here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and you interviewed me on your uh, podcast as well. But if, for those who haven't heard, uh, let's have a little h- history lesson. Uh, tell us about what got you into this whole thing and how you happened to start, not happened to start, but how you decided to start the third wave, as I recall, back in 2015. So I grew up in West Michigan, which is a fairly traditional part of the, the Midwest, uh, quite religious. And I grew up in a more you know, liberal family. My mom's a feminist. My dad works in higher education, but also a quite religious upbringing. What city in Western Michigan? Grand Rapids. Grand Rapids. Okay. Grand Rapids, Michigan. And went to church every Sunday and, you know, did that, that whole thing and um, had to follow quite a few rules. And then when I was 16, I found cannabis and was like, oh, this is interesting. And then when I was 19, I started to do higher doses of LSD, anywhere from 100 to 200 micrograms of LSD and anywhere from <clears throat> maybe two to three grams of mushrooms, excuse me. When you were 19 years old? And I was 19 years old. I'm 30. And, and where 30. were you? Where were you at when you were 19? I was, in, I was in West Michigan. I was going to a college that was pretty close to where I grew up. I'm okay. In Holland, in Holland, Michigan. And Oh, in Holland, you know, Michigan, the famous Holland, for the Michigan. for the for the great uh, tulip debacle for the tulip time festival. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. All those Dutch folks out there, and um, and in those early experiences, you know, as we all, as many of us experience, those of us who have worked with psychedelic medicine, we feel this incredible expansion, the sense of ultimate freedom, the sense of anything is possible, uh, the sense of being able to create the life that we want to live. And so through those early experiences, I just started to dream up what would it look like to, especially for my 20s, to create an existence of total freedom where I could do what I want and go where I want and choose how I want to live um, and made the choice at that point to, to, to go abroad and to travel. So I lived in Turkey for a year. I moved to Thailand and lived there for a year. And while I was in Thailand, I heard Jim Fadiman, who, who I'm sure you know well. And Jim Fadiman was on uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast talking about microdoses. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I thought back to those early experiences that I had with LSD and, and remembered, you know, for the week or the two weeks after those, those early experiences, I, I had this afterglow where everything just felt a little easier. You know, I was, I was making better decisions about uh, the way that I connected with people, the food that I ate, the, you know, I was starting to meditate a lot more. And then after two or three weeks that would sort of dissipate and things would return back to somewhat normal with slight changes and, and, and differences, you know, and this is what we call integration. Mm-hmm. Now, and at that point in time, I had no lens for it. I just thought, oh, LSD is illegal. I feel great. It feels amazing. I'm having these beautiful experiences, but because it's illegal, it must be bad. And then when I started to get into, you know, Jim Fadiman and the Tim Ferriss podcast, I started to get into microdosing and just read through the, the history of psychedelics and came to realize, oh, we've been lied to about these substances. They are, in fact, they're anti-addictive. They're incredibly beneficial for mental health. 
Uh, they have a long, long use of human history dating back thousands and thousands of years. And I just went and dove into a total psychedelic wormhole. I had studied history in college and in undergrad as, as my main thing. And so I just became fascinated with, oh, <clears throat> this is the context of psychedelic medicine and all of human history. And at that point in time in 2015, there wasn't really a strong online <clears throat> modern resource on psychedelic medicine. Whoops. Can you still hear me? Okay. So there wasn't really a strong resource, online resource about psychedelic medicine. There were a few websites, but you know, they had designs from like the 90s or they were maybe more for a countercultural uh, crew. And I thought, hey, it would be so great if we start a platform and a resource around the responsible use of psychedelics and talk about microdosing within that because, you know, with the anticipation of these are medicines that are going to become increasingly popular. And the best way to lead with it for many people who are new to psychedelic medicine is with microdosing because higher doses of psychedelics can often be very threatening to the ego. People can be very intimidated by sort of jumping into, into the deep end right away. And so why not look at microdosing as a way to ease the sort of developmental process of, of working with psychedelics. And um, so that was back in 2015 that we started Third Wave. I had my own personal microdosing experience with LSD around that same point in time where I microdosed with LSD for uh, twice a week for about seven months, found it to be incredibly impactful. As I mentioned earlier, after a high dose, you have this sort of afterglow period for integration where things are a little bit more flowy and move easier, you're more present, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I heard about microdosing, I thought, oh, what a great way to um, extend the, the integration process. Are we still on? We still good, Richard? Yes, I hear you fine. Good, 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 good. I had a little trouble there for a while. I, uh, I lost you. Okay. We, you, you never lost connection, did you? No. Okay, good. So, so that, I kept talking. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. <laughs> so maybe you better bring me up to speed. Are we are we out of uh, Turkey and Thailand? We're out of Turkey and Thailand. We started Third Wave as a platform about the responsible and intentional use of psychedelics, and the intention was, okay, psychedelics are really going to be, you know, like what cannabis was. They're really going to hit sort of a mainstream population fairly soon. Let's create a platform and a website that educates a mainstream populace about the responsible use of psychedelics. And let's lead with microdosing as a topic because that's a great way for people to start to work with my psychedelics, to start to develop the skill of how to work with psychedelics because that in itself is a skill that can be developed and cultivated. Uh, and that was back in 2015. And many things have happened over the last five years. Um, in 2018, I also started a psilocybin retreat center in the Netherlands called Synthesis, where we do legal psilocybin retreats. And now at Third Wave, we're, we're really looking, how do we build and create the, the, the trusted platform in the psychedelic space? Because as psychedelics grow in popularity, I think the core challenge for a lot of people is how do you find a clinic, a retreat, 
therapist, a facilitator who you can work with, where you feel safe, who you can trust. And that's what we want Third Wave to become is a community, a movement where clients and patients um, or clients and coaches or patients and doctors or patients and clinics can meet each other and, uh, and, and, and work together. When we moved along in this, uh, quote, drug war, uh, the avenue towards uh, legalization, uh, which is analogous to using microdosing as a entree to psychedelics, was to uh, focus on medicinal marijuana rather than uh, recreational, because obviously it was obvious to me going back maybe 30, 40 years or more, really, that it was medicinal marijuana that was going to be the, uh, the gateway to get us in the door. Uh, because as soon as the, uh, the population at large became aware of the medicinal effects of marijuana, there would be a great deal more acceptance. Um, but we're still working on undermining the incredibly nefarious work of Richard Nixon, who did a, a, a monumental job of creating an association uh, in the lives of America, an association between hippies and marijuana and blacks and marijuana and Mexicans and marijuana and blacks and heroin and Chinese and opium. And, uh, you know, it was really Richard Nixon and, and his people that, that uh, I, in fact, I have a quote from, from, uh, from uh, I guess it's Ehrlichman, admitting that they did this and then saying at the end of his quote, uh, do you think, do, did we know we were lying when we put it on the news every single night, night after night, hippies and marijuana, blacks and marijuana? Did, did we know we were lying? Yes, we did. And so they, they lied to the American public, but they told the big lie so often, as you well know, that they have instilled that in the culture. And now we have to do our best to, to, to reverse that and to educate the culture to, to the potential medicinal benefits. And I don't know if while we, we had a little break there, you talked about your personal story uh, of what the microdosing uh, uh, did for you. But I remember from uh, two or three years ago when we talked that you told me the story about how you microdosed in the, uh, at a very early stage of learning about all this for nine months in a row. You recall that story? I'm sure you do. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Would you mind telling that story again and the effect that it had on you? I think it's an important one, Paul. Absolutely. So right around the time we started Third Wave, I started to microdose as well. So I had heard Jim Fadiman on the Tim Ferriss podcast in March 2015. And in May 2015, started to microdose, May or June, started to microdose with LSD twice a week. And um, the intention was, was twofold with microdosing. The first was to enhance uh, the sense of flow and access to flow states. And flow is that sense of being in the zone. It's like when you're working on a paper or a project or you're doing some creative brainstorming or maybe you're going snowboarding. It's when the conscious mind, the self-referential mind totally drops away and you're just in the zone and moving. And so what I noticed is that when microdosing with LSD, both on the days that I would microdose, especially the days that I would microdose and the days after, it was just much easier to get into that flow state, which made creation and, and, and creating 
so much more lubricated. There was way less resistance on the pathway of creating. And so that was one big part. Did you follow, uh, I, let me interrupt for a second. Did you follow uh, uh, Fadiman's uh, uh, protocol that he suggests, which is one day on, two days off, one day on, two days off? That was the that was the protocol that I initially did for the I, for the for the seven months was one you, day on two days off. You, and you stuck to the protocol for those first seven months. Yeah, okay. I just was doing it one day on two day off. Okay, and um, and then the other intention behind it was to help with social anxiety. So you know, in my early twenties and teens, I used alcohol and you know, stuff like that to, to help with social anxiety. And, and what I noticed is that when I would microdose with LSD, I was just more open. I was more willing to connect. I was sort of less in my head and more present with people and, you know, was looking to microdose to, to help with that process as well. And, and, and with both of those things, it was incredibly helpful because ultimately what microdosing does, just like meditation, is it just helps you be more present. And when you're more present, you're more present with what is, you're slowing down, as you talked about in the intro of this, this podcast, then uh, there isn't near as much anxiety there. And when there's less anxiety, it's easier to connect, it's easier to create, it's easier just to, to go with the flow of life rather than feeling like you have to sort of force something. And that, what, that's what microdosing more than anything taught me. And it wasn't just microdosing, I think that's also worth emphasizing it throughout this period i was also meditating consistently i was getting out in nature i was you know i had a, a you know in terms of the diet that i ate and the exercise that i was going through microdosing was just sort of that catalyst that opener uh, uh but it it, it 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 was really about all the lifestyle changes that i also put into place uh, as did you have you maintained those lifestyle changes now uh, five years later yeah, they just become integrated into into who I am. Are they part the way of your, that I connect with people? And, you know. Are they part of your life? The exercise and the nutrition. Yeah, mo- for the nutrition definitely. The exercise. Yeah, I mean, I go through different phases. You know, with lately I've been doing more capoeira, which is sort of a Brazilian dance thing. I've been doing a little calisthenics, a little jujitsu. Back in Chiang Mai, I was doing more CrossFit, heavy weightlifting, but that sense of this is what I need to feel nourished. This is what I need to feel present. This is what I need mm-hmm. to feel healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, that has definitely become integrated and stuck. And that's, that's, you know, I would say it's three main things. It's still these high doses that I, that I do every now and then, uh, whether it's ketamine or ayahuasca or psilocybin, you know. Those- All right. Slow down for me a minute here. I need you to do an operational definition of high dose of each of those materials, okay. please. So what's a high a, so what's a high dose of um Well let's back up for a minute. Okay. Let's let's tell everyone exactly in MU in micrograms how you define a microdose. And let's stick with LSD, because LSD that's let's way stay it's very let's stick easy. for now let's stick with LSD. How do you define a microdose? So a microdose is going to be anywhere from five to twenty micrograms of LSD. Um, the, my microdose amount is about 15 micrograms of LSD. And for everyone, it's a little bit different because right. everyone has a little bit of a different physiology and everyone mm-hmm. is maybe a little less neurotic or a little more mm-hmm. neurotic. <laughs> um, so you got to like titrate it. And that's, again, that, that comes back to the skill of microdosing is what's that sweet spot 
mm-hmm. for you and you want it to be enough where you you notice over a week or two weeks as you're starting to microdose, you're more present, you're more easygoing, uh, there might be more energy, there might be mood improvement, but you don't want it to be so much that you become anxious or that you start tripping, right? So you want to find that sweet spot with microdosing. And then the idea with microdosing is that it's sub, the day you take it is that it's subperceptible. And essentially what that means is you can do your normal everyday activities. You know, that could be work, that could be taking care of the kids, that could be going for a walk, that could be your meditation, that could be whatever it is. You can be and a responsible can, citizen. Be a responsible citizen, but your, your, your mood is slightly enhanced. You have a little more energy. You're a little more creative. You're a little more present. And then over time, right? Let's say 30 days if someone is doing a microdosing protocol where they're microdosing twice a week for 30 days, they notice, oh, at the end of those 30 days, I've seen all these shifts and changes. It's similar to when someone meditates every day for 30 days straight. You know, it's not like after day one, they're like, oh my gosh, everything has changed. But after that 30-day trajectory, they look back and go, I'm a little more patient. I'm a little less reactive. I take a little better care of myself. I'm eating a little healthier. There are these small shifts that start to take place that lead to a healthier self. Incremental changes. Now, over the seven months of that initial experiment with microdosing, and you're saying your speed spot you found to be 15 micrograms, did you notice any movement towards increasing the dose as the time went by, which happens so often with all kinds of medicines, not all medicines, but many medicines, you know, there's, uh, it, it takes a little more and a little more and a little more to get there. Or did, what was the, the, the dose that you hit for a, spe- a sweet spot adequate and stayed there pretty much for the whole seven months? Doing it just twice a week, there really wasn't any sort of short-term tolerance that was present. So consistently doing just 15 micrograms about twice a week. I didn't notice, for example, in month four, oh, like I really need to start taking more if I'm going to feel the same effects. Understood. Why did you stop? Why did you stop at the end of seven months rather than make this part of your life forever? I had to leave Thailand. Okay. And I didn't want to, I mean, this is the truth. I didn't want to travel with certain substances of course. on my person right. while I was going like international. So I thought, okay, I'll just leave this here. And then I think a few months later, I found myself somewhere else, maybe back in, where was I? I think I was in Mexico, maybe, and started to microdose again, just, you know, here and there. But having that break, was great because I could then assess and evaluate, okay, I've been doing this twice a week for seven months. And that's a lot more than Jim Fadiman recommends in that protocol. You know, what Jim talks about is do this twice a week for five weeks. And well, he does, goes. but I want to point out to our listeners, you may already know this, that uh, Albert Hoffman himself, uh, now I haven't totally researched this, meaning I'm pretty confident but I'm not 100% confident, where he just says that for the last 20 years of his life, he took LSD every single day, and he lived to 102. 
So maybe you can find out more about that and let me know. But as best I've been able to find out, that's what he did. Now you wonder about serotonin depletion and various other neurotransmitters taking that kind of thing. So that's why we need to find out more. Okay, you told us what you call a microdose. You gave us an idea of what everybody needs to find a sweet spot. It's somewhere between five and 20 micrograms. I agree with you on that from my research, although I do have a few cases of people who take 30 a day because they are just, that's how they are. And, and when they take 20, it just doesn't go anywhere. They've, they've titrated. A few medi- a medical doctor friend of mine is in that category. Uh, but then when you get up above that number, you're into a, diff- a slightly different space. You're really not into psychedelic hyperspace at, at 40, but you're moving in that direction. And that's not what we're talking about for microdosing. Now, I asked you to give me the operational definition of what you mean when you say you take larger doses of these various things. Take us through the psychedelics that you do use or have used and what you consider uh, larger doses. So I would say the commonality between all of them, whether it's ketamine, which is technically a disassociative, it's not necessarily a psychedelic, but it has psychedelic-like effects. It definitely does if you inject it. It does, yeah. Um, Whether it's ketamine or ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD is, there's a sense of surfing consciousness. There's a sense of having a really big opening, of having a really big peak experience. And there can be visuals involved. There can be significant changes in perception. But I think that's sort of the feeling that one goes through. And then when it comes to the specific substance, they're all a little bit different, right? With ketamine, which is now legal, you know, and you can, you can go in and you can get ketamine injections or ketamine infusions uh, and do that with psychotherapy. It's called ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And it can be very, very helpful with depression and addiction and other things like that. Yeah, here in California, Paul, here in California, uh, even Kaiser Permanente, one of the biggest hospital chains, uh, they have a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy program. Really? Oh, yeah. And I'm pretty certain that people are able to use their health insurance for treatment with ketamine. Oh, yes. And, so that's uh, a- yeah, and, and we have uh, some uh, uh, colleagues of mine, Genesee Herzberg and Jason Butler, two uh, doctors, uh, started a, a ketamine-assisted uh, psychotherapy institute for uh, economically challenged people in Oakland called the Sage Institute. You want to check that out sometime. Yep. I Sage think Institute is, is great. Oh, you've heard about them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, great. So and there are uh, all these that are so we, I want to talk specific numbers because people want to know, and we also want to refer them to Erowid, of course, where they can get specific information on dosage. Erowid is E-R-O-W-I-D for you all listening. By the way, if you want to ask Paul a question, remember 650 tally ho. So let's get back to numbers here, Paul. It's important. Mm-hmm. So with ketamine, I've been doing it in lozenge form. And I usually do 300 milligrams of ketamine in lozenge form. And that's a lozenge that you put in your mouth and you swish around. And that leads to a largely disassociated state. And I'll usually put on a playlist and just go into it and surf in it. And I've been doing that with a company called Mindbloom, which does telemedicine ketamine therapy, where they now can legally send ketamine lozenges to your home. And you can go through a treatment program, which is perfect for COVID because many people 
are in quarantine, stuck at home. So that's, so for ketamine, 300 milligrams for lozenge form. For intramuscular IV, it's similar, I wanna say, 200 to 300 milligrams, but I haven't done that um, before. So ketamine has a few different things. With LSD, let's talk about LSD. LSD, a psychedelic dose, a high dose is anywhere from 100 to let's say 500 micrograms of LSD. And, and you can go above that as well. Stan Groff, who we both know is a well-known uh, psychiatrist who did LSD psychotherapy, would even give patients upwards of 1,000 micrograms of LSD if they were highly neurotic. But most people for high doses of LSD, it's anywhere from 100 to 500 micrograms of LSD. I interviewed someone on this program a few weeks ago who uh, typically takes two or three, uh, I mean, 200 to 400, uh, a, psycho a psychoanalyst in New York uh, named uh, um, uh, Winninger. And, Charlie. Uh, oh, you know Charlie? I know Charlie. Oh, Charlie's okay. great. Yeah. Well, Ch Charlie yeah. told me he took 5,000 micrograms one time. I know, your jaw's dropping. So did mine. <laughs> but that, but but I think he said it was an accident. Uh, it, it didn't, uh, but maybe it wasn't Charlie Winninger. I shouldn't say that. Anyway, <laughs> I the got most, a, a, the most that I've done is I think four hundred micrograms of LSD. To do five thousand would be. Yeah, I think my yeah. highest number, and it was a long time ago, was seven fifty. Um, I've got a, a question here for you. Uh, one of our listeners says. Uh, when you're using the word tripping, Paul, what, what do you mean by tripping? So, so the word tripping would be having a, a peak experience, having a high dose experience where there's changes in your visual perception. There's probably changes in your emotional perception. There might be a sense of ego dissolution that's dropping out of the way. There's a sense of enhancement of touch and sound and taste and all these other things. That would be sort of a, a typical psychedelic trip if you will a psychedelic experience so give me a rough guess now of how many times you've ingested a psychedelic material in your lifetime that you would refer to that experience as tripping what's your total number roughly probably 60 to 70 times and how and no probably 100 100 times actually okay probably, this this is important this is important data because the, uh, the other day I was at a meeting and I was uh, talking, one of the uh, people at the meeting uh, is a uh, clinical doctor of clinical psychology in Madison, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, uh, and he said that he has taken large doses of, uh, of LSD 900 times. And um, what I pointed out to the other person on the Zoom is that he is talking coherently he looks like everybody else at the meeting. Uh, everything he says is using regular logico-deductive uh, uh, wording. There's nothing unusual about how he looks, how he talks. And if you could smell or taste him, you could probably say the same. And yet he has taken LSD 900 times. That in and of itself is an extremely important piece of information. That's the reason I asked how many times. This wasn't a uh, just a trivial question. You have taken it 67 times, 60 or 70 times uh, to, uh, in large enough dose that you call it tripping. You've had, you know, major changes in consciousness and emotional state. And yet, obviously, here you are, uh, your faculties are functioning beautifully. Uh, you've got a great smile on your face, you know, and, you know, you're, quote, a regular person. 
that is extremely important because remember what we were fed for the last 53 years is that if you do this stuff, you're going to be jumping out of buildings, you're going to be standing on your head, you're going to be looking like a raving hippie in the Haight-Ashbury and all kinds of other ridiculous activity. And it's obviously, as more and more of us come out of the closet about this, and, and, and I love what you're doing, you know, it becomes more and more obvious to the public that all of that was hogwash. It was disinformation, really, disinformation used to weaponize the media against certain people, mostly of color. That's really what it was about, mostly of color. And that's why our jails, as you know, are, fu are, are, are full of people of color because the police then acted on that and put, the, put people away for it. And of course, you know how irritated, if not enraged I am about that whole, that this whole matter. And I'm gonna keep talking about it probably for the rest of my life. Uh, because it's outrageous. And until we do something and empty those jails and, and stop this activity, it, it, the, it, it will go on, right? It's, it's part of what's inst called institutionalized racism. We're, we're focusing on one piece of the institutionalized racism, which is weaponizing medicine against people, right? And, and thankfully, I think it's worth emphasizing, Richard, that we're seeing more and more changes and shifts. We're seeing cannabis in terms of cannabis becoming legal and psychedelics now becoming decriminalized. And Oregon as a state just decriminalized all drugs. I think Vancouver and the whole entirety of Canada is doing that. I just saw something about, I think New Zealand is decriminalized. So we're, we're seeing those shifts, but it's still, we're only 10% there. Exactly. Uh, there's still exactly. there's still a lot of progress in the next, but but I'm optimist. I'm 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 optimist. I'm, I'm yes. an optimist. Yes. In that by the end of this decade, I think we'll we'll have reached a significant tipping point in that in that war on drugs. Well, that's part of what I love about you calling your program the third wave, because this is a wave. And by the way, let's take a little sidebar here and tell our listeners why you call your program the third wave and what that third and what the other two waves are before it from your perspective. So the first so the the name I, I want to talk about the name a little bit third wave of psychedelics how it came about because i think it speaks to what psychedelics help us to do which is think creatively and think outside the box and think from an innovative perspective and i was in budapest at the time with two friends and we were on lsd a higher dose of lsd not just a microdose and we were talking about this sort of this is 2015 the resurgence of interest in psychedelics and we were going to a third wave coffee shop and third wave coffee shops are like the nice cafes where you can get a cappuccino with a swan you know an artisanal swan on top and they have single origin beans from guatemala etc cetera, etc cetera. so we're going to these third wave coffee shops we're talking about psychedelics and we're trying to come up with a name of well what what's going on how, how do we sort of frame this resurgence of interest and 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 kind of we came up with this idea of oh this is the third wave of psychedelics and then we're like oh that that sounds interesting like maybe there's something there and then upon reflection as I started to read more and more about like I said I studied history in undergrad I love love history as I started to read more about the history of psychedelic medicine I came to recognize that oh wow humans have been using these substances for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and so that first wave of psychedelics is sort of the classical 
an indigenous use of psychedelic medicine. So we could go, you know, ayahuasca in the Amazon, which has been used for thousands of years. We could talk about kaikion, which was a beverage that was used in ancient Greece in the Eleusinian mysteries where Plato and Aristotle and all the major Greek thinkers and philosophers went. Uh, we could talk about Soma, which is in the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, this, you know, sacred brew that people would drink in ancient India that had mushrooms in it. So we've had this rich lineage, even in the Bible, you know, the whole um, burning bush, Moses, you know, it's likely that Moses was on something called Syrian root at that time. And this hallucination that he had of the burning bush was from the plant medicine that he was taking. So when I started to go, oh, that's this first wave. So we have indigenous use, we have rituals, we have ways that we've learned to integrate these into different cultures and civilizations across the world. And then the second wave was the counterculture of the 1950s and 60s, but not just the counterculture. The second wave represented the first time that we had tried to uh, use science to understand psychedelics. Because for the first wave, it was just uh, indigenous use. It was classical use. We didn't have sort of the modern scientific method to analyze psychedelic medicine. And then with the second wave, thousands of papers were published about the clinical use of, of psychedelics, LSD for alcoholism and LSD for uh, social anxiety and LSD for depression. And there were thousands of papers. And unfortunately, things got a little well, because of what happened with the counterculture and the hippies and the Vietnam War, and it was just, it felt like it was too much. There was a counterculture. It was against the mainstream culture. The counterculture was this. The mainstream culture was that. And essentially, the mainstream culture was too strong at that point in time and said, hey, we got we to gotta shut this down, which is where that quote from Ehrlichman comes from. You know, they knew these drugs weren't harmful, but they had to... Um, discriminate against these people, the hippies and the blacks. And the, the best way to do that is to say, hey, the drugs they're using, let's make those illegal. Because we can't throw them in jail for being hippies or being black, but we can throw them in jail for using cannabis or using LSD or using heroin. And then this third wave of psychedelics is really looking at the integration of those two. How do we integrate the ritual and the wisdom and the knowledge from thousands and thousands of years of use? with cutting edge scientific method to understand how do we use these substances with responsibility and with precision. And that started in, in 2006, Roland Griffith started, you know, published the first paper about psilocybin occasions, mystical type experiences. And then over the last 15 years, there have been hundreds of papers that have been published. Michael Pollan published How to Change Your Mind in 2018. Uh, you know, MDMA and psilocybin have received breakthrough therapy approval from the FDA. Denver decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms, Oregon legalized psilocybin therapy. And now there are millions, if not billions of dollars of investment that are pouring into the psychedelic space to totally upend healthcare as we know it, which I think is incredibly exciting. And so we're now at this point in 2020, towards the end of 2020, uh, beginning 2021, where it looks like psychedelics will become legal medicine within two years uh, in uh, places the, like Canada and Oregon. Yeah, there's hope that MDMA will be uh, a, become a prescription drug by that year. By 2023 for PTSD, but you also have in Canada, 
psilocybin therapy could be legalized within the next year or two. And in Oregon, they just passed a measure by 2022, they'll have legal psilocybin therapy. So I, think, I think Oakland passed a similar law too, didn't they? The city of Oakland? Well, Oakland decriminalized all of plant medicine. So That's they right. just made it the lowest law enforcement priority. But Oregon is actually creating regulations and standards mm -hmm. for how do you train facilitators? How do you train therapists? Who has access to psilocybin? Who can grow psilocybin? So they're actually creating a legal framework for how we actually work with this in a therapeutic model. Now, your organization, The Third Wave, which offers courses... Uh, in fact, uh, our producer, Charlie Dice, just told me to remind listeners that there's a coupon of some sort that's associated called MindBody15. And if you sign on for one of Paul's courses in microdosing and use the coupon code MindBody15, you get a 15% discount. So check that out, listeners. Uh, uh, Paul, your whole organization is about educating and teaching the use of an illegal substance. How does that go down with regard to the law? Uh, are there eyes on you? Do you feel like you're being watched? Uh, you know, how do you relate to that? How does your staff relate to that? Tell us what it's like running an organization that's all about educating people about an illegal substance. You know, when we started in 2015, which is more than five and a half years ago now, I think it was September 20, 2015, I initially, you know, used a pen name. And I think it was Tom Williams <laughs> because I was concerned. I, you know, I was like, you know, if I come out publicly about this, who knows what might happen. And then about a year after that, I just changed to using my regular name, Paul Austin. And then about a year after that, I was speaking with Jim Fadiman, who had been on the Today Show. This is in 2017. Um, and he was on the Today Show. And apparently there was a DEA agent who was also on the show uh, to talk about microdosing. And the DEA, the DEA agent essentially said that microdosing is the lowest, absolute lowest priority for law enforcement because it's mostly being done by middle to upper class white people. There's no crime associated with it. You know, so there's there's really no sort of attention and energy on it. And in a way, by focusing so much on microdosing, we are helping people through education. We're helping people to understand why actually taking fewer amount, you know, lowering the amount that you're taking from a drug perspective is healthy and beneficial. So in a way, we're, we're doing everyone's work for them. We're, we're, we're we're helping the government who still thinks, you know, maybe these are difficult or harmful drugs. And we're, from their perspective, we're probably helping people to do this in a safe way and an effective way and doing it less. And from the eyes of people who are interested in this medicine and see it for what it really is, you know, they, they see it as beneficial and we're helping them with, with that framework as well. So at this point, you know, it's been five and a half years. I've never received a message from any sort of governmental agency. I've never been under surveillance as far as I know. As far um, as you know, we, we have many we have many team members, you know, who have who have come through and we have about 12 people, 12 to 15 people on the team right now. And all of them feel, you know, safe enough. 
And, um, and I think especially with all the progress now around psychedelic medicine and the investment that's coming in and the FDA approval in Oregon legalizing psilocybin therapy, mm -hmm. and all these cities decriminalizing, it just feels like psychedelics are at the, the so-called bottom of the totem pole. You know, I'm sure you're aware, a, that a, you're aware that a, I think one or two companies recently had IPOs and have moved on to uh, psychedelic companies are on the stock market with some pretty serious funding behind them. MindMed, I think, is one of them, isn't it? Yep, MindMed is one, and MindMed just hit a billion-dollar valuation, and then the other one is Compass Pathways, and Compass Pathways is on the NASDAQ trading in, I think, 50 to $55 a share, and they're at a $2.3 billion valuation. Quite significant. Which is insane. I mean, yeah. it's it's... It's very significant. And, you know, a lot of the plays that people are making are biotech companies. And although, you know, it will be many years until they have a revenue source, apparently biotech companies are valued based on the addressable market. And for mental health, that's hundreds of millions of people and the efficacy of the clinical trials. And with psilocybin, as we all know, they're, they're, there's incredible efficacy at treating depression. And so I think that that combination makes the, the psychedelic space, a, a tr potentially trillion dollar market in the next 10 to 10 to 15 years. So I want to talk now about uh, two forks in the road. Uh, they don't really have to go in different directions. They can go in parallel directions. Uh, and that is, one is the uh, use of psychedelic uh, medicines for uh, healing. And the other is the use of psychedelic medicines for creativity and advancement. And these are really separate because the first one, you'd be a patient and you'd be going into some kind of a, a, a protocol, some kind of structured situation uh, with a guide uh, and, uh, and you would be treated as such for the particular uh, uh, condition that you had, such as uh, uh, depression with, uh, with psilocybin uh, and the wonderful work that you referenced that uh, Roland Griffiths at John Hopkins has done. Uh, and then there's a second track, and, uh, which is the track of creativity. And I'd like you to just sort of uh, uh, talk away about uh, those two tracks. So one track is really about healing trauma. It's about this process of becoming whole, of feeling like I can be present, I can be in my body, I can be with things as they come up. I, I don't live from a place of fear or anxiety or anger or shame. It's possible to drop a lot of the negative emotions and be more present, right? And that's where the vast majority of people who are interested in psychedelic medicine, that's the journey that they're on right now. They're healing trauma, they're becoming aware of things that have been repressed into the subconscious and the unconscious and doing psychedelics within a therapeutic container that allows the sort of veil to be open and these traumatic memories to be processed and dealt with. So as an ex like a specific example, the reason MDMA is so great at healing PTSD is because in normal waking consciousness, those who have PTSD can't actually talk about their traumatic experiences because it's so overwhelming. In particular, the amygdala, which is where fear happens, 
when someone who has PTSD and normal waking consciousness tries to speak about their traumatic experience, the amygdala tightens up so much, it contracts so much that they just can't do it. It's impossible. And so what happens with MDMA is MDMA softens the amygdala, allows the amygdala to stay basically chilled out. And then within a therapeutic model, that person who in normal waking consciousness can't speak about the traumatic experience, when they're on MDMA, they have a catharsis and that traumatic experience can be brought out, it can be forgiven, it can be integrated. And then that doesn't continue to impact their lives from a subconscious or unconscious perspective. But I think that process, and that's why psilocybin is so great for treatment resistant depression or alcoholism is because oftentimes depression, addiction, anxiety comes from a core trauma, comes from an adverse childhood experience and psychedelics help to heal that wound so someone can be present with whatever is going on with them. So once we reach that level, so to say, then it becomes possible to sort of expand and look at the whole sort of realms of, of human potential. And this is where Maslow, you know, talked about self-actualization and how psychedelics can play a part in that. This is the research that Jim Fadiman and Willis Harmon did in the 60s about LSD. You know, what role does LSD and mescaline and psilocybin play in that creation mode? Because what LSD and all psychedelics are so great at is helping the two hemispheres of the brain to communicate with one another. And so when the two hemispheres of the brain communicate with one another, there's this process that happens called divergent thinking. And divergent thinking is when we take two ideas that don't seem to be related at all, and we come to recognize that there's a synthesis, there's an integration between those two ideas. So an example of this is when I talked about how we came up with the name of the third wave of psychedelics, we were talking about psychedelics and we were, trip, we were, we were on LSD in Budapest, and we were going to third wave coffee places, and all of a sudden, two seemingly totally disconnected ideas, psychedelics and third wave coffee spots, integrated into this new innovative thing because of what's happening in the brain and the mind. And in fact, in the 60s, Jim Fadiman did research on this, where he gave 25 people in Silicon Valley LSD and basically said, hey, like if you've had a problem that you've been trying to work on for the past three months, come to this session, we'll give you LSD, and all of these tremendous breakthroughs happen as a result of that. He had architects, he had engineers, he had managers who were coming with these big problems. And then they were able to find an innovative and creative solution to help with that process. And so in my own sort of personal experience with psychedelics, what I've noticed in that creation process is they really help with visioning. So when you're able to take a psychedelic, you're sort of, you, you go into a state of consciousness where you can observe everything that's, everything that's happening without becoming attached to it, without becoming involved with it. And in that observation, let's say the 50,000 foot observation, you go, oh, this is interesting and this is happening and this is happening. And if you come in with a problem, so to say, or, or something that you wanna solve, because those hemispheres of the brain are communicating really well, you can look at things from different perspectives, unique perspectives that you never would have before in sort of normal waking consciousness. And from my perspective, this is why psychedelics have become so popular in places like Silicon Valley. This is why Steve Jobs said LSD was one of the most 
important things that he ever did. It's, it's why the computer revolution came out of Silicon Valley in the 60s, because all those people were doing acid who were involved in the computer revolution, because psychedelics can help you see things from totally unique angles and perspectives that you never would have thought of before. When you said uh, you referenced now several times going to that coffee shop with these friends, so you're saying that you went out in public and went to these coffee shops while you were on high doses of LSD. You were able to navigate, you walked down the street, or you went, did you actually go in a vehicle? How did you get there? Do you remember? And uh, you're able to do such things. You know, this is beyond the imagination of most people when they hear, you know, two, three, four hundred micrograms of LSD, if they can relate to micrograms or things that they've heard. It sounds like, for the most part, you're going to be flat on your back or, you know, sitting in a chair and watching the inside of your mind. And certainly if you, you know, follow uh, the great protocols, it's set and setting and you want to, you know, the last thing you might want to do is be on a crowded street or sitting in a coffee shop. So tell us a little more about that. I see. You yeah, 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 yeah. So that, those are like two different. So we, I was with friends in Budapest for a week and during the week, we were going to like different third wave coffee shops. And then on a specific day, we woke up at like 6.45. We took about 250 micrograms of LSD each. And then we called an Uber. And the Uber brought us to a park that was overlooking all of Budapest. That was overlooking the Danube. And it was like a beautiful park where we then just sat in a beautiful meadow, us three, watching the the shifts and the like you know everything happening and then as part of the integration process later when we're walking around we're kind of reflecting on oh that was such a beautiful experience that we had on this high dose of lsd and we're drinking a coffee you know sober again i think that's very and that that, it's good to clarify that richard very good to clarify that that. very much so Right, because yeah. you know, the next thing you know, there will be sound like we're both yeah, we, saying, "Yeah, we don't want to do that." No, That's we don't want to do that. Yes, <laughs> uh, I've got a, a text here from uh, from a listener, Paul. Okay, um, how is microdosing different from current prescription drugs? Couldn't you get hooked on it and then be paying the big new companies an annuity rather than paying big pharma annuity? You know, how will it be any different? So there are a couple key differences. That's a great question, by the way. It's a really good question. Most pharmaceutical or psychotropic medications are addictive. So if you start taking them, as anyone who has taken an SSRI before or an anti-anxiety medication before can attest to, once you start taking them, it's very, very difficult to get off of them. Very difficult to wean off. Um, Whereas with microdosing, LSD or psilocybin, you can microdose two, three times a week for a month and then stop cold turkey, you're not going to have any sort of withdrawal symptoms. I think that's the first key significant factor. The other key element- Wait a second, let me stop you on that one before we go on to the other key element, but hold that thought on the other key element. How can we know that the microdosing after enjoying its benefits for a certain amount of time doesn't put a hook in for after all if i'm this way and here's my baseline and all of a sudden i take a little of this whatever it happens to be and there are no negative consequences that i can see whatsoever 
why would I not want to take a little of this on a fairly regular basis? As I said, possibly Hoffman himself took it for every day for 20 years. We're going to find out more on that. But why would one not want to? And therefore, just because there isn't withdrawal from stopping doesn't necessarily mean that a hook isn't in because it can be a different kind of hook. Or maybe it's not a hook. Maybe it's like taking fish oil or maybe it's like meditation or maybe it's something healthy that's nourishing, just like you would take a prebiotic probiotic or just like you would, you know, go for a morning walk in the woods. What's not to say that we have, what's to say that we have to view microdosing as, as, as negative if we take it consistently and why not view it as something that enhances everyday life? Well, that's a as point long, well taken, but we still, I think that's a good point you're making there that you could see it as taking a vitamin on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, we still have to deal with the, with the listener's question of paying for it and who gets the money. And, and one of the, one of the beautiful things that I, uh, we saw on, on, uh, I guess it was on, uh, oh, uh, television last night with, uh, with, uh, Ling, she did yeah lisa ling she did that program and one of the things i was pleased to see that she pointed out Mm -hmm. is how easy it is to grow psychedelic mushrooms because that's that's the ultimate answer to the listener's question about paying big pharma the annuity which is to grow it yourself yeah and i think that's a beautiful part about mushrooms is there will be companies probably when it's legal third wave will produce a microdosing supplement and we'll have the microdosing supplement with other great herbs like ashwagandha and rhodiola and lion's mane. Like we'll, we'll create something, a nice formulation. And if someone wants to support us because they want to purchase it, we would love that. You know, that would be great. That supports our mission. You know, so I think there's a way to engage with businesses where it's not like, um, you know, you, you don't see it as a negative thing with, if you're getting medicine from them. And there's definitely the opportunity to grow your own mushrooms. In fact, I think what we're going to see in the next year or two is there will be a company that will just come out with some innovative little box that you can buy at home. That's right. You can stick in your, you can stick in your closet. You spray some water on it a couple of times a week. And within a few weeks, you'll have your own mushrooms that you can then grind up and, and use as medicine. So um, I, that, that's where I go. I, you know, maybe if someone is microdosing LSD for ADHD and LSD becomes an approved treatment for ADHD, then there's the whole pharmaceutical issue. But I think for most people, they can either grow their own mushrooms, they could purchase a formulation like a supplement formulation that's reasonable, or they can make friends with someone who grows their own mushrooms and get their medicine from a, from a local grower. I think all of those are ways to step outside of the sort of pharmaceutical industry way of, you know, kind of overcharging and keeping people hooked and kind of that whole mentality. Yeah, I think we have to reframe the way we look at the particular ingestion of the substance. Um, Mm. Here's another question that just came through, Paul. Mm. What is the worst example of abuse of psychedelics you have encountered? And what do you attribute it to? The drug itself or other factors? That's a great question. I like that question. The worst example of psychedelic abuse, abuse of psychedelics you've encountered, and what do you attribute it to? The drug. Probably is... the... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. 
I would say probably the, the worst general abuse is, is when facilitators, and you see this in ayahuasca circles, and you see this elsewhere as well, when facilitators use psychedelics to, for, for, for sexual reasons, we could say. Uh, and this was, you know, there was a documentary on Netflix about the Bikram guy who did this with yoga uh, or any guru mentality. If someone gives up their power within uh, a situation, then psychedelics, what they do is they increase something called suggestibility. And that's really helpful for behavioral change because if you increase suggestibility, you're making it much more likely that you can change your behaviors. Unfortunately, what that also does is it makes people much more susceptible to harm, potentially, if they're not in a safe container. And so that's why it's so critical and so key that if someone is intending to work with psychedelic medicine, that they know without a shred of doubt the clinic or the retreat or the provider that they're working with is very safe. And that has less to do, I think, with the psychedelic medicine and it has more to do with the fact that the, the, the person who is hosting the experiences is, you know, psychopathic or a narcissist or has a personality disorder or, you know, anything like that. A predator. I actually, I think it's a combination the way you describe it. And I think you described it accurately, Paul. It's a combination of both the drug and the other person, because as you said, these medicines, some of them make us more suggestible. So that's what the medicine brings to the table. And then that other person takes advantage of the one of the references of the medicine, namely the person's in a suggestible state and they take advantage of it. So you need, both things are happening concurrently. And I, this is a very important part of this program because listeners need to know about the importance of what we refer to as set and setting, what your mental set is as you go into taking one of these medicines and what the setting is. And the setting, of course, is critical. And the setting is not uh, on the street and it's not a party setting and it's not with people you don't know. The setting is typically in the way Paul and I are talking about it, particularly for use with mental health issues. The setting is with a guide who is guiding your way, who is caring for you and who's a professional person. As you get more and more sophisticated, the use of a guide can be a friend and it can be a person who is trained to be a guide, not necessarily a doctor. All of that works so long as it's still someone who knows what they're doing and is familiar with the territory. But we're certainly not saying that these things are to be used cavalierly. And what Paul's pointing out, which is so important, is that when you have a combination of, su of suggestibility and a predator, you have a lethal combination very dangerous. And we and we have seen, uh, for the listener who asked this, yes, we have had some examples of it. And it really tarnishes the entire uh, field when that happens. And those of us who are who are uh, really fostering uh, 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 responsible use, medicinal use, and the use for creativity, and I certainly want to always come back to that, that these medicines are not just medicines to treat something. They also happen to be medicines that foster creativity, enhancement of the self, growth of the self, expanded consciousness, and they will be able to be used for all kinds of scientific experiments. 
And one of the ones that I'm most interested in, Paul, that we haven't talked about in the past is that I think psychedelic medicines will be the tools for epigenetics. I believe that psychedelic medicines, when used over a period of time with skill training, will teach us how to go inside and make internal changes. I believe that psychedelic medicines are the tools that will teach us, will allow us to teach ourselves, that's a better way of putting it, they will allow us to teach ourselves how to make presently involutional involutional activities volutional. And the example I use is that when we get a cut on the back of our hand, we may just put a little something on it, but we have a total expectation that over a period of days, that cut is going to heal. And it does. And a scab is formed. And then we have an expectation the scab will fall off. It does. And it may leave a little mark. And over time, that little mark may go away or it may be there faintly. But who did that? There's only one person in the world that did that. And that's us. When I get a cut, I'm the one who healed that. But I don't know how I did that presently. I can't tell you that I can focus my mind and make that happen slower, faster, or any other rate than the rate that it goes. And yet, I must acknowledge that I did that healing. Certainly you didn't. Nobody outside of me did. Therefore, the only person left that could have done it is me. So then the question I ask is, how do I learn to take control of that activity? And once I do learn how to take control of something simple, like a cut and healing a cut, how do I then take that skill inside and go into my pancreas or my liver or my kidney or my heart and make internal repairs using the focusing of the mind. And that's that's where, for me, the big action is, Paul. The big action is in that epigenetic change so that I can make internal changes to my system as I'm going about uh, my life. I, and I look forward to that. Oh, here's another person wants to, uh, somebody wants to ask you about your course. Can Paul tease what people can expect in the course? Give us a tease, Paul. Yeah, we teach like the skill of microdosing more than anything. So the, the basics of this is how you titrate your dose level. This is how you find your precise dose level. We talk a lot about the lifestyle changes. So we talk about meditation. We talk about breath work, yoga, you know, like what, what are the, so if microdosing is the catalyst and the opener, what are the different lifestyle changes that you're integrating so you can be more present? And this gets back to the previous question. We don't want microdosing to be the magic pill. We don't want to give up our power to microdosing. We want microdosing and psychedelics to be that opener to recognize that that capacity is innate. It lies within us to heal and to transform and to be creative. And that's a lot of what we we talk about in the course. Um, So the basics of how to do the actual microdosing, the protocols that you do it with, but then also what are the lifestyle changes that we're making as a result of our microdosing experience so we don't have to be dependent on it if we don't want to be. Yeah, you've, you've anticipated the next question and you did it beautifully. The next one was speak to the skill of psychedelics, not a magic pill. And that's what you're saying, that it isn't a magic pill. What it is, is it's a facilitator for allowing us to create our own magic. 
and uh, creating our own magic is also a skill. And that's what you're teaching in the course, because it's all about, and you know, this is the similar thing I ran into during my uh, 10 years with the chemical dependence, you know, when I uh, ran the Coke Enders alcohol and drug program and changing from, uh, from a chemically dependent person to a free person is, is about all those lifestyle changes that you, that you reference. There, there is no one thing. You don't just quit. You don't just uh, all of a sudden stop. And if lying was part of your activity as a chemically dependent person, you don't learn how to stop lying overnight. It takes skill training over time, practice and practice, along with those, with those other things of becoming a balanced person. And that's what it's about. The, the other thing that I love about, about uh, a psychedelic, the a psychedelic experience is that it calls for interpersonal and intrapersonal honesty. There's something very honest provoking about the experience. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. It helps you look at things from a, an objective perspective because of the, the ego dissolution properties. And when you get the ego out of the way, the ego is that protective mechanism of the personality. And when that's dropped, you can just fully be with things as they are and see things in, in full truth. And it can sometimes be very difficult. It's not always easy to see truth, but it's very healing to see things as they are, to be honest. Paul, people are listening, if not to this program, they're listening to your podcast. If not to the two of us, they're reading books. You reference Pollen's book. There's my book, Psychedelic Medicine. I really think, if I may put it this way, that Pollen's book, my book, and Jim Fadiman's book are the, are the trio uh, of importance because Pollen talks about the personal experience, I talk about with the scientists and Jim Fadiman is the recipe book. And so the, the, we cover the bases with those three, right? You've got the recipe, the scientists and the personal experience. And so more and more people are going to be seeking this experience and they'll be coming to you for a place to go. They'll be looking in their own neighborhoods for a place to go. What kind of, what kind of caveats do you offer people? What should they be looking out for in order to stay safe? And, and what kind of money should they be spending so they, they don't get gouged by, by people who would uh, abuse the finances of this? What can you tell us about that, please? Well, for anyone who's interested in, in working with this, as we talked about earlier, ketamine, assisted psychotherapy is now legal. And so there are, there are many places that will offer ketamine assisted psychotherapy. So I think that that's one you know, the first consideration when it comes to mushrooms, when it comes to sort of working with these substances, it's always wise to either grow them yourself or to have a trusted friend or network that you that you know where you can where you can get these substances. And if you don't have any of that, there are many sort of psychedelic societies. And with COVID right now, there's fewer and fewer sort of in-person events. But there are a lot of communities that have popped up around psychedelics. And so I think it's worth just starting to look at who can you connect with, who can you develop and cultivate relationships with, who also have uh, this same interest to start to build that sense of trust. And this is, this is what we're doing with Third Wave. You know, our intention is to build a community and a platform about you know, responsible and intentional use of psychedelics where people can find, a, 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 you know, they can find trustworthy education and they can find a facilitator or provider who they can work with in a trustworthy way. So I would say 
the intention in all of this is, you know, just go to third wave and uh, it's called the third wave.co. Uh, we have a, we have an email list that people can sign up for. We send out a newsletter and just start to get involved there. And as someone becomes more involved in that, um, you know, we can help guide that and Sherpa them along this, this path of healing and, and transformation. Paul, all of these substances were made illegal by a government out of control and a government weaponizing the laws against certain people. As a result, the cost of these substances is created in great part by the risk taken by those who supply them. So for example, here in California, as marijuana became legal, the price dropped because after all, Marijuana, which grows out of the ground, probably shouldn't cost more than cauliflower, but but it was selling for four hundred uh, for not not four hundred dollars or more an ounce at one point, uh, and and that is because people are paying for the for the illegality for the risk and so on. Is the same true? And this is where we're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up talking about with with your comments about the money. Always follow the money. Will the price of these substances for one hit of MDMA or one microdose and so on, will it drop dramatically once these medicines are made legal? It depends, you know, it depends on which state someone is in. It depends on, you know, a lot of the expenses for this medicine, for let's say MDMA assisted psychotherapy. It's not necessarily the drug that costs a lot, but it's the hours and the service of the therapist who you're working with. So I think the, the substances themselves, whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or LSD, will always remain fairly inexpensive, you know, relatively inexpensive. But the, the sort of cost in this is the quality of the therapist or the coach or the practitioner or the doctor that you're working with and what their hourly rate is for being there with you as you go through this experience. So you're paying for the guide rather than the drug itself. I mean, the drug will cost money, but it will be negligible in comparison to the the, the expense of a guide or a doctor. So I just got a note from our producer, Charlie Deist, and he wants me to once again mention your coupon code to give you a plug here, Paul. So Remember, everyone, when you go to the third wave and sign up for Paul's great course, put in the coupon code MindBody15. Anything you want to say in parting before we wrap this up, Paul? Just that I'm very appreciative that, that we could have this conversation again, you know, revisit it a few years down the line and get the latest updates and there's been so much progress uh, since that point in time. And like I said earlier, if people uh, need support on their path, if they're looking for a community to to start to engage with and interact with, just to go to the third wave, which is the thirdwave.co. We have a course, we have a private forum. um, We have a, we have a newsletter list and just start to look at ways to become involved that way. Um, Because I think the key with all of this psychedelic medicine and healing is, is the, the sort of, connection that comes from community it's about connection and And let's and in that regard paul let's you and i stay connected only forever and uh when you get to california please uh get in touch let's get together in person and uh 
do some uh, talking. I would love that, Richard. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And special thanks to my producer, Charlie Deist, who makes this broadcast uh, possible. This preceding program was brought to you by Thanksgiving Coffee. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif, is a social worker and political activist who has improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. Paul so much appreciates mind, body, health, and politics that he created three special blends of mind, body, health, and politics coffee. Three blends. He donates 20% of all his internet sales of mind, body, health, and politics coffee to the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, support Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and support the COVID Response Network. Please, listeners, join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.